This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Shilowitz and Roni Abovitz. It's This Week in XR for November 17th, 2023. Our guest today, because I didn't bury the guest, Linda Jacobson of Hapdex, uh, but also an uh, XR OG, uh, part of the founding team for Wired, uh, among many, many other uh, great experiences. So we'll look forward to catching up with her in 15 minutes after we do the news. But before that, in the green room, as we were prepping to go live, Roni declared we should ban TikTok. So I told him to save it for the top of the show. What do you mean? Are you now part of the Trump uh, wish to sell it to Larry Ellison? No, no, no. God, God forbid that. No, <laughs> um, it's it's more of like uh, the the awareness for the United States, the West, um, Western democracy, that they're they're sort of opposition to our our sense of how we live and work. Um, and if you trace like who owns TikTok and what's the purpose and how it's funded and how it's impacting not just thinking in in the United States but actions, um, it's it's a really interesting thing. Like it sounds terrible, but like in the 1930s, would we have allowed a TikTok? propaganda machine that was run by the Germans or the Nazis to be all over America, uh, reshaping the thinking of the United States. Um, and it's something, it's something to think about, you know, and there, there's a lot of, I'd say it's a lot of data points that you could see in public. I'm sure the U S government has a much deeper understanding. And the question is like, are we going to do anything about it? Um, and it's different from like an American-owned company, Twitter, or Facebook. You could agree or disagree, but this is a outside U.S. government uh, that funds and supports something that is shaping how American society thinks and how we act. Um, and looks like it sows division. I'm just going to bring this up because in the last days, you had to have been completely asleep not to see a huge amount of Americans like reciting and in favor of like you know Bin Laden and Al Qaeda. I'm like, and that that sprouted on TikTok. We don't know how it originated, but the fact that like you've got a generation that, uh, you know, it's it's our modern Pearl Harbor, a generation that like doesn't seem to care, um, and and actually voices support for like one of the worst terrorists in history, um, who killed thousands of Americans and like destroyed you know a good part of New York. I I can't even imagine that such a short period of time later people are in support of that. Anyway, that was my diatribe. Um, and we just kind of went up. Roni, that's like a special episode to unpack that. Special episode. Holy here's, crow. Here's a quick. <laughs> Ted, you got to put in the Ted right there. A yeah, quick debate right point. And, and what will be interesting about this, I think, to you, Roni, because I think largely, you know, we agree on mo most and many things. This will actually not 
cut to the core issue that you're talking about, but it will add a layer of complexity and challenge to what you're talking about, is that very likely the vast majority of the content and the users and the user dynamic of this form of social sharing of video and social media, whatever we call it, is not nefarious. It is kids being kids, teenagers being teenagers, young adults being young adults and older adults being older adults and finding ways to just gather little moments of enjoyment and, and cuteness and fun, right? Um, and the bulk of the world perceives it as just that. They don't think like you're thinking about the underlying challenges and cause. They're just thinking about the user effect, right? And the user effect, you could argue, is kind of largely positive. Um, you know, in the fact that people are finding entertainment from it, just like any form of well, entertainment. It's also, it is also important politically when something like a George Floyd murder goes down. Right. Uh, there's no way the truth can be suppressed. And if it weren't for citizen journalism, um, you know, we would still be going around thinking that, you know, black people are making it up. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so, so there I'm are 100% for citizen journalism. In fact, I was one of the first ones blogging. So this is not about that. This is about, do we allow nation states who do not have the best interests of this country, the West, to use our social media, our freedom and our openness to infiltrate and disrupt American society? And can we tell the difference between good things like well-meaning journalists talking about social issues or someone coming in and putting propaganda into the country and i know it's a super fine line um, and it does need its own its own show yeah that's that's the problem is the needle that you're threading becomes really complicated and there are valid arguments on both sides of the equation and it's 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 not an easy thing to unravel you'll never fully unravel it right this is kind of what societal challenges have always had with with various forms of technology let, let, let me say this and, and then let's move on um to me what we're talking about indirectly is influence and transparency so my concern about tiktok but also our other social media platforms is that they are influencing us not by putting up obvious misinformation and propaganda but by influencing us in ways that we are not aware ostensibly for the purpose of selling advertising, but as you point out on TikTok, it could be for the purpose of selling ideas. So I think that is the danger and it's not just from TikTok. So anyway, much larger conversation. We're here to talk about AI and XR. So let's move back to that because uh, we only got now uh, about 10 minutes before we're gonna bring in Linda. Um, uh, one of the top stories this week, character AI. Do you guys know character AI? Yeah, I've played with yeah. it, yeah. So yeah. character AI looks like they're going to raise a billion dollars either from Google or Andreessen. There's a feeding frenzy going on. Uh, they may take the money from Google. They're ex-Googlers, the founders. So uh, that was in the news. Uh, interesting convo about Meta, speaking of Meta, you know, they were pretty good about not going into China, unlike some other big tech companies, uh, because they wouldn't agree to the censorship and the limitations that would put on them. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, plus, China didn't really want Facebook in there because they control uh, WeChat, I think, uh, from Tencent. So instead of trying to beat them, they have joined them. And now Tencent is going to be releasing a version of the Quest 3 in China. And for anybody who doesn't know, Tencent is one of China's biggest conglomerates, among other things. Uh, you know, they are the biggest video game company uh, and by far the biggest mobile video company, I think, in the world. So this is and they own a significant portion of Epic, which most. Yes, they do. Real. And Riot Games. So League of Legends, Fortnite, Unreal Engine. Want to talk uh, about Chinese influence? There you go. Exactly. Exactly. This is a complex melange of issues. But look, in a good way, like we want U.S.-China to have economic relations we want an equilibrium we we want to not have conflict with china i think as as a world um the question is like if that's true if that's equal we want all of this but there's been a lot of really weird discord in the last i don't know seven eight years it's hard to understand what's happening on both sides true that uh, so anyway, uh, I guess whatever was up with Zuck in China, all is forgiven. So we may see other inroads into the Chinese market by meta platforms. Uh, good for them. Their stock is reaching the stratosphere. It feels kind of bubblish, to be honest. Uh, I, I would I would be fearful when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful to quote Warren Buffett. So uh, anyway, the, they're lowering the price. Of course, the Quest 2, you can basically get for 50 bucks on eBay. I just checked that yesterday. So if money was keeping you out of a VR headset, uh, you're, in, you're in luck because the Quest 3 ain't that much better than the Quest 2. Um, and also the Quest 3, I should mention, this: the Quest 3 in China is going to be a lower cost kind of stripped down quest three whatever that means so apparently they're going to introduce that in the u.s or there's speculation they will introduce that in the u.s and they may get rid of they'll get rid of quest two altogether and that'll be their entry level but, but charlie headset. it does look like quest three is maybe having a little of the early mainstream i, I don't know if we've got enough numbers to, mm. to declare that but boy maybe, boy maybe not quite boy yet. do i hope that's true it would be nice, right, if yeah. something crossed in that line. Well, I think they'll get a nice bump at the beginning of, of the dedicated people who will benefit from upgrading. Um, we'll see. I hope so. I, I mean, honestly, it would be nothing good for everybody in XR uh, for them to succeed with the Quest 3. So one of my favorite sites just raised $5.1 That used to be a lot of money, Civit. And Civit was a community site. So this is a little inside baseball, but perhaps perhaps people will be interested in a quick explanation of how stable diffusion works. Now, there are several websites now who are renting time on servers running stable diffusion, but it is an open source model that is particularly good with images. And you download it from GitHub. You, you need to know a little Python code or enough to cut and paste Python code. There's a lot about this on Google, some very good tutorials, but you have to be not afraid of technology to do it. You also need to download something that provides you with the LoRa, which is another way of talking about a model with metadata. And you put that model with metadata into stable diffusion somewhat indirectly. 
And now you have a very specific customized model. If you were going to do matching shots and matching lighting, uh, it's a very good tool, although people are getting a lot of great results from MidJourney. Uh, so anyway, what they have for these models is a giant website a giant website where people are sharing not just the model, but again, the metadata that is needed for it to um, influence the outcome of the stable diffusion AI. So uh, it's it's massive. It's super not safe for work. As you can imagine, the early adopters had a penchant for anime and, you know, girl warriors and all the usual uh, stuff that you would expect. So, uh, you know, of course, I don't know. Andreessen Horowitz doesn't seem to be too afraid of that sort of thing. Uh, but unclear to me, by the way, what the business model could possibly be for this. Carly, you have just entered a whole nother podcast. I'm sure our listeners are like, what, what, what do I got to do? <laughs> I know that's oh, a generative okay. AI <laughs> podcast. Sorry, let's move on. Uh, oh, CreateSafe, uh, the company behind the Grimes uh, AI. Yeah, the music uh, AI thing. Yeah. It's, it's now open for business uh, to the public. I think it is more geared toward uh, people who are performers who, who want it to generate songs of their own voices, not fakes. At, at least that's the way it's being pitched. Um, so anyway, Grimes uh, manager, surprise, surprise, is the co-founder of the company. Uh, and uh, she is on the board of advisors uh, looks like um, Paris Hilton and some other insidery inside people are involved. So uh, do you guys often think I'm curious just to, to try and give a little framing to some of this stuff. Do you guys think and ponder like I do about the the resurgence of the, the, the Gutenberg printing press moment where, you know, every generation you have a new moment where a new form of technology allows more democratic use case, more openness, and a flood of people all around the planet finding different creative uses for technology and building things and trying to, some are trying to be disruptive and own new businesses and find new business models and sort of upend, uh, you know, the profit center of one world and make a new profit center. Others are just in it for the full creative spirit of creating new things in new ways. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of that. I'm just you know, I, I just constantly are reflecting on with every sort of these days, it's almost like every eight to 10 years, you have this whole nother range of a whole new printing press moment where m way more people can access more tools and touch more things in more ways. So you guys, how often do you reflect on that? I'm curious. Uh, you know, actually, I was just thinking something similar. I mean, this, you know, I've said before, this feels to me like that internet moment when everybody saw the mosaic browser and you yeah. know like all of a sudden you viewed the world differently yeah uh, one thing i've seen uh this week in particular is people making their own gpts and they are pretty good yeah yeah they yeah, are well, pretty I mean, good i mean they're neat if you haven't checked out the gpt app store most 95 percent of them are free uh and and some of them are quite good so a surprise i was surprised a new printing press. Here we in go. In fact, in fact, Lauren, our AP, is going to make one for the podcast. So you feed the podcast into ChatGPT, and uh, out comes uh, opinionated uh, commentary on the news. Nuggets, nuggets of what we talked about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we'll see, but uh, I think we're going to. I think that's going to be super impactful. Uh, Okay, last last thing, and then we'll get to Linda, though I don't see her in the green room yet. Uh, Humane AI pin. 
So, you know, they emailed me this week, you know, I've been on the list, you know, I'm super interested in this whole idea yeah. of life logging using, using this device and, and really being able to, you know, reflect on, you know, all the information that goes through you that you don't even think about during the day. But unfortunately, so I was going to plunk down $6.99 plus the $24 a month commitment for the T-Mobile connection. And I found out it, un any of the features that would make it useful and make you willing to leave your smartphone at home are actually not there. Not ready yet, yeah. And if you want mobile chat GPT, you can totally turn that on on your phone. So I think I'm going to wait on this one. Yeah, I'm curious, Roni, because Roni, you've been experimenting with different form factors for device oh, wow. input and output much of your career. So uh, you have opinion on this. Here, here's, here's a, I guess here's my thought on it. It it's like a it's like an Apple design team who probably in a different simulation of the world would have made this as a peripheral into the Apple ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. I have my watch, I got my earbuds, I have my iPhone, and I have this little pin that talks to stuff. And that pin, probably if it was made by Apple, would be smaller because it's talking to the other stuff and it would be part of iOS and or you know the, the watch OS or something. And the utility value on day one would probably be like a thousand X of humane. I think the problem now with launching a device is you're not in an ecosystem. There's, there's a real dilemma for startups and hardware. It's not just that hardware is hard. It's building the ecosystem and all of its complexity, which is this huge barrier of entry, uh, which requires like enormous capital, not just to make the hardware, but maybe tens of billions to build the full ecosystem. Um, uh, so I think this is the dilemma I have with the humane pin. Like if it was launched by Amazon as part of their system or by Google or by Apple, the receptivity and the functionality mm. would have just been so much bigger. So it's hard to opine on the mm. value of it as a design object because it lacks all of that other stuff. And I've been spending a ton of time doing- No, that's such a good projects point. In it. Right, and I think, so it's hard. I think it's hard for anyone to critique the design in its isolation. Right, because nothing anymore that we really use at scale in computing is isolated like that. And I feel like they know it and they're probably hoping one of these ecosystem players buys them. Yeah. That, yeah here's that the makes total we, sense. like and I'm sure the behind the scenes conversation, like, wouldn't this be so cool at Amazon, at Microsoft, at Google, at Apple? And I think if they're not acquired, it's very bad. Well, right. and that may have been the plan. One of, one of these companies buys them and adds them into the ecosystem. That may have been the plan all along is, you know, see if you can design a slightly different interface toolkit tool set that can grasp into, you know, a certain use case and ideal and know that the trajectory of this is to bring it to another ecosystem and give people another peripheral. Does, you know what's scary, Ted? Do you guys remember the Pebble watch? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's very similar. Is this the Pebble and then a few years later, Apple will launch this in some variants as if they invented it themselves, right. which is well, classic Apple. One way to think about it is that it's a wearable sensor. Yes. And so having more sensors, right? You didn't need to hold your phone all the time. The sensor could do a lot of that work. So that's why what you just said about Apple resonated with me, because I think they would view it as a, a sensor in their ecosystem. Ted, that's yeah. uh, sorry, Charlie. That's a great observation. The wearable sensor category, like your clothes as a sensor, uh, Adobe has this amazing dress that's like a full display. All that category is super cool, but as a standalone company, mm -hmm. but as part of an ecosystem yes. to design and sell to a big company, hundred percent yes.
Rona, you make a really interesting point about uh, looking at Apple and to some extent Google these days, but Apple is really the master of it. Watching others sort of stumble around uh, in you know the darkness or the semi-darkness and then Apple goes, yeah, that's actually a good enough idea. We should build that into our world. And that's essentially, essentially Apple's entire product strategy, right? Which we've seen over and over again. So Linda, Linda Jacobson, welcome to this week in XR. Um, we had, as I said, Linda was on a, a podcast with Ted and I uh, celebrating the whatever 15th anniversary of Zapper, uh, the AR company that sp sponsors our show. Uh, so uh, we had a great time. Um, we had John Snotty with us from Disney. He just retired. Uh, he's a legend legend in uh, XR, as are you, Linda. So thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. I'm happy to be with you. Good afternoon. Are you on the East Coast? I am in Richmond, California, uh, across the bay from San Francisco. Oh well, we're all in the same, we're all in the same time zone. It's eight twenty. So, how are things going at Haptex? Things at Haptex are going really well. We're getting ready to ship the first commercial Haptex gloves uh, very soon, and that so that's that's really exciting, and uh, it's. Just fascinating learning about touch simulation and tactile feedback and force feedback and how you make it all work with all the other uh, sensations. So it, it's going well. Thank you. The the gloves that seem come in two flavors, right? There's that really expensive one that you know for telerobotics and uh, stuff that they the company has shown up before, and then now there's a new one that uses force feedback from air. The the first one was the development kit. So it was it was pre-production, you know, it was done on a one one off basis for both organizations wanting to uh, control robots, humanoid robots from afar, as well as for touch sensation in virtual environments. So the upcoming glove is a commercialization of that. It's it's smaller, it's lighter, it's less expensive. All the exotendons that provided the force feedback are inside the glove now, so you don't see them. Uh, there's more actuators um, displacing your skin and your palms and your fingers, and all those are inside the glove. And the glove is more flexible and, and softer, so it feels more like a work glove or um, utility glove. And it is completely wireless and is run um, pneumatically. Uh, by air channeled to it from a, a 19 pound backpack that you could wear it on your back or put it on a desk. And uh, that that powers the, the gloves. That powers the, uh, the tactile feedback in the gloves. And then there's motion tracking that makes it all work. That's, you know, it's, it's nothing without spot on motion tracking. So the air gloves, the ones you're talking about, first of all, it sounds they sound like a version of the the gloves from Ready Player One that look like work gloves. In fact, I think they probably used actual work gloves to make those, but uh, it's a very, very cool idea. And so are you saying it's a combination of the servos and the hardware and air? And air, there's also a vibrotactile uh, sensation as well. So vibration in the fingertips, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of technology working together to create the illusion that That's right. you're holding or manipulating virtual objects uh, that have real scale and and shape and are are hard and have collision and all that. 
Yeah, what's really fascinating to me uh, after having been in this space for so long is the developing language amongst uh, creators to speaking about what it means to have tactile feedback mapped to visual, mapped to oral audio and, and how people are developing emerging best practices for incorporating these technologies. It's, a, it's an interesting, really interesting time. Uh, for developers, for, for people who want to explore how you create a realistic or lifelike experience. Yeah, it's Linda, we, so we talk about this as we talk about this as the, the full simulation loop, right? And right. I, I'm, I'm fairly sure you know, I'm, a, I'm a, what I you would be called, I would be called maybe a semi regular haptex user because I've used mm -hmm. various iterations of the device for a number of years now. So let's go back a step for our listeners to talk about the evolution of the company, why it started, where it started, how long it's been around, because it's been around for a little while, uh, and that development curve that's gotten you to a point where, I mean, you're still not talking about something that's fully consumerized. You're talking about wearing a 20-pound okay. backpack. Yeah, it's for with, enterprises. With, it's for right, work. It's for enterprises. Right. With this rig that, that allows something really magical to happen. So there's a significant commitment. You know, we're looking at it for theme park applications and location-based sort of entertainment kind of how can you how far can you build the simulation so maybe kind of give a little company history for the listeners to understand what what it is and where it goes uh, the company is is about 10 years old so it's a young company venture backed and uh is the brainchild of a um of an engineer with a very humanistic approach to to life named Jake Rubin, who uh, when he was 20 and a college dropout had a vision for creating uh, digital realities that um, felt so real that you couldn't distinguish them from, from uh, physical realities. And he approached uh, Dr. Robert Crockett, Bob Crockett, who uh, has been the Dean of Biomechanical Engineering at Kyle Poly in San Luis Obispo. And at the time, Bob Crockett was offering consulting to um, founders and inventors of disruptive technologies using biomechanical componentry and, and approaches. And uh, Jake approached Bob about helping uh, to realize this concept uh, of using of uh, pneumatics uh, and microfluidics to enable um, physical displacement of skin and force feedback. And, and they uh, paired up and started working on prototypes and, and gathering interest from, from investors and uh, slowly, but very, very, very consciously and carefully have been developing uh, the hardware and the software to bring this together for, uh, for 10 years. The company has, uh, has two headquarters, one in San Luis Obispo, uh, which is really the seat of hardware engineering. And the other is outside of Seattle and Redmond where software uh, engineering is happening. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so so uh, yeah, the, the first customers have, using the development kit, they, they the first, I, I'll go back and tell you my introduction to the company, which was- That would have been my um, next question. Which was an aha uh -huh moment for me, total aha uh -huh moment, uh, which I hadn't had an aha uh -huh moment in virtual reality. And, 15 years. Um, it was maybe 2018, 2017 or 2018. And I had been asked by a friend of mine who was running a VC fund in San Francisco to help him vet 
pitches from founders of virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. And so he invited me in to hear the pitch from Jake Rubin and uh, Joe Michaels and, and to see and experience their MVP. Uh, their their um, prototype was about the size of a big old microwave oven. And uh, it wasn't a glove that you put on um, external to the box. You put your hand inside the box, inside of a glove, and then you put on the head-mounted display and you, you got the demo. And inside the head-mounted display, there was a fairly rudimentary, colorful, whimsical farm environment. Uh, and in, in that farm environment, I got to um, um, run my hand over waves of grain and, uh, and grab clouds and squeeze them till water came out and uh, a spider came out of uh, the barn and, and I had a fly swatter that I could smack it with, but the, uh, and, and it crawled across my palm, which raised the hair on the back of my neck. The, the mm -hmm. most, uh, uh, the, the one that brought tears to my eyes was uh, a small deer, um, which came over to my hand when I put it down and hopped on my hand and it circled a few times and I could feel each individual hoof on my palm as I'm looking at it and it circled and then settled down to kind of nuzzle against my my palm and I could feel the fur and the poking of its nose and it it was so realistic um I I, I it brought a lump to my throat and uh, and it brought to mind my earlier experiences in VR about how all of the ones that were life changing for me were involving these precognitive um, interactions with the world. Before I could think about it, I was thinking I, it was it was real. And they all involved more parts of my body than just my head and my eyes. Right? Yeah, they, I had so, I so had that, that was it. I had that that very similar parallel experience to, to give the, the listeners a sense of what you're talking about. It was the, the beginnings of it almost felt like if you kind of were ever did, you know, high school or college chemistry, it was like uh, the, the chemistry hood where you put your hands into this thing, into this That's magic right. box, like a and, box and your hands were like then absorbed into this world. And I had that same experience with the little deer that ran on my <laughs> hand and the spider that ran on your hand. Now you're at this point there, I think they were using a Vive system or you know something yeah. That's right. and track system. And the tracking was really, really good. The little spider would dance around on your hand and then it would rear back and it would give you a little bite. And it was like, wow. I remember that. And they also had raindrops, right? Yes, raindrops, they had raindrops. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think the first time, and they brought it to a couple, this is interesting, you know. It was at South up. by like in 2019 or something. Yeah, that's right. I saw Joe there. Yeah, they brought it to a few conferences. South by maybe Sundance, maybe a CES. And, I know, think they went to, yeah, it. CES in last year. They, but yeah. we had a huge, we yeah. had a huge game of Lego that we played. <laughs> yeah. I, me and Tom Emmerich played Lego wearing <laughs> the gloves. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. And so and that, funny. That's the, the debut of multi-user haptics, right? Both in one place touching each other. That's 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 starting to happen. Big, big time. Linda, did you ever um I, I don't know if you guys are experimenting with this or not, but like the one of the most profound things I ever experienced was when we had dialed in like incredibly good visuals and sound and something would land in your hand. Um a lot of people, including myself, felt it. And we didn't have any haptic anything on, mm -hmm. but our brain knows how to do it. Mm -hmm. And it sort of stuck in my mind because, uh, you know, we experimented with with haptics and other things. Um, 
as you know, it's kind of the ultimate, like, you know, sound field, light field, haptics, and then taste and smell one day. But let, let's say, I think touch is like one of the big three. So the, the question for you is like, do you see a day where you can like radically miniaturize uh, what you're doing, maybe the microfluidics part into something that just really feels very small, which I think becomes scalable and affordable and what, what mass consumers will use by not only making it the mechanical force, but by tapping into here. Cause that, that was mm -hmm. such a profound mm -hmm. thing for me to suddenly mm -hmm. feel something. And I'm like, wait, what's going on? And like, there's a synesthesia where when two of That's the three right. major centers are happening, the brain is doing it. So I wonder at haptics, are you sort of not just looking at the mechanical engineering, but like the inner neuroscience of the brain and how to wake that up? Because I think, I believe that will lead to some radical miniaturization of, of what haptics is building. Yeah, agreed. And and we know that there are researchers using the, the gloves who are looking at that part. The, the brain is amazing. We connect the dots. No, that's uh, it's it's uh, Marshall McLuhan's uh, territory. The way in which haptics is heading is is bigger. It is not smaller. So uh, bigger haptics devices? itself, okay, the whole body. Oh, whole body. So you're gonna you're gonna dress somebody in a full fluidics haptic suit and then enter the full simulation dynamics that way. That's that's kind of the long term trajectory of the or even short term. That's trajectory the long. The that's that's exactly right. That's right. You know, so, so really, I, we're about the quality and the fidelity of the experience and expanding it to more parts of the body's sensory systems, and then letting other people miniaturize and and uh, bring down the costs for consumers. And haptics is going on the performance end, is aiming for the fidelity. Can Can I do a screen share? I'm I apologize to you people on. Uh, audio only, which is like 95% of you. <laughs> but I'm going to put up here on screen share for the benefit of those on video, but also on Linda. Here's a quick look at the gloves and the air box. Um, and air uh, pack then, is what we call it, yeah. The air pack. And then there was one other picture, which was my very first, here it is, my very <laughs> right. first look at Hapdex, which is the guy suspended in midair He's got a harness on as well as a VR headset, gloves, and a bodysuit. And he appears to be running in midair. So I had just started working for Forbes. This is, I believe, 2016. And I saw this picture, right? I ended the screen share, by the way. I saw this picture. And I thought, is this a real thing? <laughs> right? And I Googled it up and I thought, oh, my God, it's a real company. And, mm -hmm. and I got in touch with Jake. And he said, well, you should come visit us and, and do the demo. So I did that demo in their office with him and Joe in like 2017. It was amazing. Uh, and of course, now uh, it's almost 2024. Um, are you surprised at how long this is taking? Oh, no, not at all. No, I. Um, it seems to be at a good pace. And Certainly, the development of technologies uh, are, are, is linked to the, the funding uh, environment and, and, and people with forethought and patience and assets have, being able to help support that development. But in terms of the technology ecosystem and its implementation overall for the field of immersive computing or spatial computing, uh, it seems to be uh, moving as uh, as well as as it can, uh, setting aside those 
um, those outside market forces. Um, but I think that's what you mean, overall virtual reality, not yeah. necessarily yeah, yeah. tactics, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now I um well they're tied together, are they not? They're totally tied together. Yes, yes. I, I um you know, in, in something like nineteen ninety-nine, I think, or nine two thousand, um, I was asked to give a dinner talk at an IEEE symposium to um forecast the future of the virtual reality field um in twenty twenty five. I was asked to look out 25 years and and uh, give predictions for this. You know, I was the um, dinner entertainment, right? So um, I, at the time, was working at Silicon Graphics, and uh, I was the company's virtual reality evangelist. I was the first person with, with that title, and I had organized a group of experts that I had called the virtual reality experts group, VREG, I, like modeling it after JPEG or MPEG. <laughs> And, and so I reached out to uh, the members of that group around the world and said, what do you, what do you think will be 25 years? You know? And then I compiled all of these responses and, and gave this talk. And uh, you know, really the, the enabling technologies, that, that's what we've been waiting for the, you know, it, for them to develop, to miniaturize, to commoditize, to, and, and to increase um, performance. You know? but, so, so it started out, you know, at that level of the technology being developed and 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 moving beyond, you know, slow frame rates and latency and poor performance. All of that had to be ironed out. And at SGI, we used to have shirts, T-shirts that said 60 hertz at 60HZ, you know, like 60 hertz, 30 hertz, H-U-R-T-S. <laughs> All right, so that was okay. Uh, so Linda, you have completely, joke. Linda, you yeah. completely piqued my curiosity now because you talked about your SGI. Uh, oh, here we go. Now we go into the OG portion of our show. This is the OG portion. <laughs> uh, can I leave Ted? Can I? I'll just finish my statement. Now yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Because it because we had to do the technology, then you create the 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 medium, a, a development of a shared language, right, for using the technology as a communications medium. And this third place that we're in now is developing the skills and the talent in the workforce and in the creators to leverage these tools to make them useful. And so that I believe that's where we're at right now while these other technologies continue to develop. So to be that 30, 40 year time frame seems completely reasonable if you look at a big picture around the development of how long it took for TV's golden age to, to take part after the TV was invented or the, you know, the music industry so far after the tape recorder was invented. So I, I feel like we're right in that kind yeah, of the, Go on, Ted. Yeah. The three of us, the three of us, the three of us yeah. totally agree with you on that arc. Um, yeah. and, and we talk about it very often. Roni talks about it in very specific because he's constantly studying that mm -hmm. arc. And so am I from my perspective. But the interesting sort of kitschy part of this for, for the people listening um, when you mentioned SGI and that you were involved in the VR, the beginnings of the VR initiatives for SGI, it immediately triggered a part of my brain. And I know, Charlie, you probably know where I'm going with this, with a very magical experience that was my first sort of formative entree into virtual reality and has stuck with me for now 30 years, was probably in the late 90s, the Aladdin Magic Carpet Ride. Mm -hmm. At, mm -hmm. at Disney Quest, which I would love mm -hmm. to hear your level of involvement in, and maybe you want to explain 
what that was. I've explained it before, but I would love to hear it from your perspective, you know, how you touched it, what you, you did. You know, I was at Virtual World at the time, and we did contribute some brain power to kind of figuring that out. Yeah. The guy we were working with at Disney was Joe D'Annunzio, and the other yeah. guy was Tom Garland from Tommy SGI. Garland. Yeah. yeah, he's a terrific yeah. guy. I'm not sure what he's doing now, uh, yeah. but I, I was in touch with him recently. He's still in the game. Good. So this is a that's very great. important part of the arc of where we sit yeah. today. And Linda, you've touched it, and I think that's really valuable for people to hear how you got involved, what it what it was, why it was so unbelievable, and still to this day, unbelievable. That yeah, that that was that was wild. Those were wild times. It was a really fun time. I, a lot of people, you know, in this new new phase, uh, who entered this field only in the last ten years, you know, just see the the Oculus kind of path. Um, and so you hear these these odd claims about oh, now from gaming we're getting serious, you know, with with VR. But it but. Back in the days of the Disney Quest and the the, the formating formation of the uh, of the immersive uh, entertainment space, the uh, the roots were in flight visualization. You know, flight simulation, visual simulation of a military totally. and, and medical. So I mean, uh, virtual world yeah. was entirely yeah. based on networked flight simulation. Yeah. yeah. So all, so that really was the. The, the trickle over into into the entertainment space uh, and uh, the the entertainment organizations had the forethought and the money and the talent and the creativity to take these technologies that were being used for um, government purposes and and repurpose it, it, it to create delight and and the the US government wanted that the and the US government also wanted the um, the the feedback from the storytellers of the world who knew how to use this. Personally, I, or professionally, personally, I was brought in to Silicon Graphics specifically to develop the business outside of entertainment and military spaces. So there was an understanding that okay, here we have the um, the film industry, the game industry, arcade industries together figuring out how to leverage these high-end graphics and amazing displays and devices to make flight simulators our entertainment. And uh, yet, so where, what are we gonna do in architecture? What are we gonna do in automotive engineering? How about aerospace? How about um, medicine and healthcare? And how about data visualization for, for Wall <laughs> Street or data visualization for, um, uh, for Procter and Gamble's Pampers engineers, you know, the computational fluid dynamics for diaper production, you know, there's a lot of money there. So, so uh, that was my, my the very glamorous part that. of the uh, yeah. uh, immersive industry. Yeah, coming in and pulling together the, the 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 components and the pieces that could then deliver the dream of Disney Quest to companies like you know, Johnson and Johnson or mm -hmm. Ford or Honda, they, they all wanted that. So Disney, I was involved on the marketing side and on the promotional side mm -hmm. uh, with the, the, the whole Disney quest effort and going to, um, yeah, that, the, the adventure that yeah, Disney quest is its own, its own podcast. Adventure. 
Yeah. We should do we should do a special on Disney Quest. That is a great story on a lot of levels. Yeah, yeah I, I also will tell you, uh, Ted, that earlier before I joined SGI, um, uh, a guy named Mort Heilig was like a mentor to me. And Mort Heilig had in had been a Disney uh, behind the scenes at Disney creating um, the multimedia live shows in the parks in which you would have film um, projected onto a giant screen and then actors bursting through the screen. So it was a combination of, of live and um, recorded uh, activities. And, and so Mort had been the person who developed Cinerama and then the Sensorama, mm -hmm. uh, an early an arca early arcade um, implementation of immersive immersive uh, and sensory I don't know delights. if you were at so, SIGGRAPH in LA over the summer, yeah. Linda, but no, uh, our friends at USC uh, reconstructed the, the Sensorama. No, they couldn't get it fully working, but it literally was a 35 millimeter movie projector that you stuck your face into. Yeah. Uh, it, was it on the, the motorcycle chassis? It was not. Oh, okay. oh well, there yeah. was a seat that you sat yeah. in, but it was not motion. The seat was not motion yeah. based. They yeah. put a quest on your head so that you could get so that you could see some of the stereoscopic films that he made uh to go with Amazing. the sensorama yeah, yeah the, you know, more 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 and people like frank allen you know the great disney animators um talked a lot about the um the use of virtual reality to create spaces that were like churches of the of the middle of the middle ages that used incense and singing and gorgeous colored light and soaring architectural um masterpieces to create a sense of wonder and awe in the people who would it's come true. in. To, that's to true. That, those and were that's movies. They to recreate. Yes. Those were movies. And you also have to understand how shitty and stinky and brutal and cruel the world was outside of those doors. That's right. So, you know, the church really was a place of refuge as much as we criticize it. Its role in society in the Middle Ages is very different. And of course, that's why they made all those great churches. You look like in the Czech Republic, you know, and you tour around, you see these churches that have been untouched since the 13th century. And, and you get an idea of how far they went to create an illusion and to fool people into thinking they were in a holy place. It's like location-based entertainment. If done well, exactly. Boom. That is true. Exactly. <laughs> last, exactly. last question, Linda. Let's take it back to Hapdex and the present. Sure. Uh, at CES, where again we played with the um, Jenga, uh, they were all. I mean, I, Haptics was a thing, right? Ult Ultra Leap yeah. was there. Um, recently, right. there's there's a thing that has sort of an air pad that you mm -hmm. hold your hand over, and a lot of different approaches to haptics. Um, do you think any of those are going to work or did you view that as sort of a, you know, uh, a second inning at bat, so to speak? I, setting aside the business potential for these companies and of which so much of that has to do with, you know, just not so much the technology, but even the strategic and emotional intelligence of the people behind it. So there, you know, it, it's hard to say just on the strength of the technologies alone. But, however, the 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 takeaway is that um, uh, our 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 ecosystem, our field, we now understand that 
haptics and touch sensation is valuable uh, as a valuable modality inside a virtual environment to enhance one's sense of presence, to enhance your sense of embodiment, to enhance your sense of other people in that with you. And just a few years ago, when I met the folks, Jake Rubin and, and Joe Michaels and Bob Crockett behind haptics, just five or six years ago, people were having to explain what is haptics. So, so we've gotten beyond that as, as a community to understanding, okay, I get it now, let's, how do we make it work? And is it vibration? Is it pneumatics? Uh, does it, is it, uh, can I, what can I do with just the hands as opposed to the chest? I mean, there's companies at CES that had uh, haptics uh, in, in shirts, I wasn't but... too wowed by that. No, <laughs> I wasn't either. Boom. Right, right in your gut. So I, you know, it depends. It, it all depends on the the customers and who who uses it and makes magic with it. And so that that will will unfold over the course of the next three to five years. It'd be great to see what. Carly, can I ask one does. question for Linda? So Linda, a lot of folks are sort of like always waiting for some giant mainstream moment. But do you think? that what you're working on and some of the high-end immersive compute haptics sound, it's just more of like helicopters, submarines, scuba diving. Like it's there, it's good. It isn't everywhere for everyone, but if you want to go there, it's kind of amazing. Like not everyone in the world scuba dives or gets their license. Not everyone in the world flies a helicopter. It's not like every, it's not like the Jetsons was a helicopter in every driveway, but we have helicopters. I wonder is some, is some of this, in a in a range where it requires um, a level of equipment and gear and thinking and like you know not everyone's going to go to space and do space flight but it's a science fiction thing we made real do you feel like that's the field you're in and we don't need to wait for a billion users whoever wants to partake it's there and it's kind of like does that make sense mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i, I, I it's it is a suiting up you know it, it it really is different to just jump in a lake and go to a swim and to head up to tahoe to go skiing and all the rigmarole that goes along with it there's definitely rigmarole that goes along with suiting up for an immersive experience so it has to be in the right set and setting right for someone to be able to make make it worth they're wild. Like the bodysuit you're doing, right? To mm -hmm. remind me of like deep sea diving, right? If I'm going to go mm -hmm. 150 feet under the water, it feels like I'm going to put on the haptic suit and a high-end VR and big computer. But then that experience could be wondrous, right? Versus like a $300 mm -hmm. everyday thing. So if you want that, you got to pay that price for gearing up. Um, it doesn't seem like yeah. it's just going to super miniaturize. Like you still have the suit, you still have the gear you need. Yeah. Um, but it's it's yeah. a very cool experience, right? Yeah, I, I think there's two two ways it's heading, and one is of course the the um, the AR MR aspect of eyewear and how that's going to kind of become more ubiquitous and less intrusive and encumbering. And then uh, I want the the big headset to go away, and I love the idea of projected stereoscopic environments like caves and 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 other uh, larger scale displays with which you could then interact with projected um, imagery around you and feel it without the other encumbrances of the of a suit or a, uh, or a headset. So um, I'm looking forward to the development of those larger displays that allow us to do this without strapping things on. 
Linda, that is a great place for us to end, although I wish this interview, as always, never had to end. It's great to hang out with you. We'll look forward to seeing Likewise. you at CES and uh, catching up with you and Jake and Joe and the rest of the team there. So thanks for your time today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we're off next week for Thanksgiving, so uh, we'll see you back here in two weeks. Happy Turkey. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving.